0: U.S. and Kiev cannot confirm claims from Ukraine's neo-Nazi Azov battalion about Russia's alleged chemical weapons use, according to Politico. U.S. officials question the credibility of the Azov Battalion, noting that they have an interest in provoking a wider conflict. Oh, come on, Wilmer. If you can't trust Nazis, who can you trust? Hey, man. Well, you know, the Nazis of today, they just aren't like the Nazis of yesterday. Yesteryear. Uh, What does this say about the U.S. narrative? For Insight, we turn to our first guest. He's an international relations and security analyst based in Moscow, Mark Sloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon
1: Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour.
0: So political reports alleged and unconfirmed claims of chemical weapons used by Russia in Ukraine has forced a scramble inside the White House to match Biden's promise of an in-kind response while avoiding further escalation of the conflict. Uh, Mark, we know last week. Uh, You know, Tony Blinken had to admit via U.S. News and World Report that the U.S. can't confirm the use of chemical weapons. Uh, And Blinken says after defense official reports, no indication of imminent Russian chemical weapons attack in Ukraine. This chemical story has been unwinding, unraveling for about the last two weeks. And now the Blinken is forced to say And well, it's not what it was. Mark Sloboda.
1: Yeah, I mean, not only can Antony Blanket not confirm the use of chemical weapons, but even the Kiev regime won't confirm the use of chemical weapons. Even Azov's own founder, Andrei Boletsky, who famously said the national idea of Ukraine is to lead uh, the crusade for the white race. Um, even he said um, that uh, that there were three members of azov battalion surrounded you know uh, facing a defeat within a few days uh, that uh, they received signs of chemical poisoning but no disastrous consequences to their health he went on to say that they had a headache and uh, basically the sniffles um, hay fever <laughs> so uh <laughs> Yeah. Fever. It, it yeah. is spring. The, the, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, if, if even the regime in Kiev that has been throwing out so much disinfo from Snake Island to the ghost of Kiev to the bombing of Babi Yar and Chernobyl, even they can't b- get behind this um, because let's face it, they yet be. A weapons of mass destruction, chemical weapons, provocation, false flag down the road. But they don't really want to blow their guns yet on – uh, on this on uh, Azov trapped in Mariupol in a hopeless situation they want to save that for for a, a, a you know uh, uh a bigger scenario not where the only people claiming it are are neo nazis uh so um i'm i'm afraid that azov has been hung out to dry uh on this um, uh, you know, bull feces claim, not just by, uh, Washington, but also by Zelensky and Kiev. Sorry, neo-Nazis. It's just not your day and, you know, suck up the hay fever. You know, and it, it gets even worse because, uh, NBC ran a report, uh, earlier in the week, um, in a break with the past, U.S. Right. is using intel mm-hmm. to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. Mm-hmm. And they went on to say that um, even though uh, U.S. officials had they said they had indications suggesting Russia might be preparing to use chemical agents, and Joe Biden semi- uh, said it publicly, but three U.S. officials told NBC News this week there is no evidence Russia has brought chemical weapons anywhere near Ukraine, uh, or even that they have them, for, for, for that matter, since they destroyed their stockpiles. They said the U.S. released the information to deter Russia from even thinking about using the banned munitions. And they went on to say that uh, the whole purpose of this exercise was to get inside Putin's head. So they basically announced... That they are perfectly okay with using disinformation and blaming Russia for using chemical weapons, even when they have no evidence at all that Russia has even brought chemical weapons uh, near Ukraine.
2: Well, my favorite part of that, of that, that same paragraph was that they said Russia doesn't have chemical weapons. We got no evidence that they have them. And we did that to deter them from using the chemical weapons that we just told you that they don't have. And I thought, boy, you're having some logical issues here. Perhaps you should, you know, take a philosophy course.
1: My favorite part was a a few lines later when they said about this release of disinformation under the guise of legitimate intelligence, uh, certainly not calling into question the legitimacy of U.S. intelligence, uh, Iraqi weapons of mass destruction, but they said observers of all stripes have called it a bold and so far successful strategy.
2: Well, apparently not the zebras. Uh,
1: Real disinformation. I mean, who are these observers and what kind of stripes do they have? That's, That's what I'm wondering.
2: I was going to say they're not zebras because we're not allowed to use the letter Z. So they would be ebras.
1: This is the western media, yeah, you're not allowed to use litissey. Uh, I mean this is the western media basically saying that the US releasing disinformation about Russia in Ukraine is a bold and successful strategy.
2: Mark, let me let me connect that to this 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 art right, right now what the BBC wrote. Well, wait,
0: before you do that, sure. two things. Go ahead. One, Go ahead. Uh, that falls under the construct of the noble lie and it's yes. it's very important for those listening to understand that the noble lie and also when you talk about this story it's important to look at who the lead writer is, or the lead, the first name mentioned, and he's the co-author, Ken Delanian, because Ken Delanian was fired from the L.A. Times for sending his stories to the CIA to have the CIA edit his stories before they were published in the L.A. Times. And then he went from there to AP. And he's with uh, NBC News? And right? now he's with NBC News now. So it's important not only to read the headline and the story, but to understand who it is that's telling. You the story. Now, now, let me throw the
2: obvious connection to you that just jumps out in your lap. So NBC News writes a story, and it says that the intelligence community and in the U.S. government has been lying to us about the story. That's what they're really saying. They've been lying to us, and we've been printing their lies. That would imply maybe you should have a ha- higher standard of
0: evidence in the future before you print the stuff they give you. But wait a minute. Why are they printing the story now? Right. I submit. They are printing the story now. That's the State Department's response to the Pentagon releasing the other two stories earlier in the week about chemical weapons attack. And the other story was Putin could be doing a hell of a lot more, but he's not. Let us explain to you why. Well, here's, here's where this goes with this one, Mark. The BBC's story says
2: Ukraine Azov Regiment said three soldiers were injured by a poisonous substance in, in an attack on Monday. However, no evidence has presented to confirm the use of chemical weapons. Here's my point. You just printed, wrote a story that said they've been lying to us all along. So you got to have some standard of evidence. And your standard of evidence is... Three Nazis said they that they were well. injured by a poisonous substance. It could have been alcohol. Could they have like gotten road rash when they Nazis slid down drink. the sidewalk running from a bomb? I don't know. But your standard of evidence is now three Nazis said, hey, they were injured by a poisonous substance. Let's run with that and see if a chemical—I in- mean, at that point, you look back to the story and you say your standard of evidence has gotten lower than the last one, Mark.
1: Yeah, I'm— when the journalists, you know, decline to note that the Pentagon refuses to confirm it, that that um, that um, it, the Ukrainian government refuses to confirm it, but you still run with three neo Nazis, right? I I have to say that it is the fourth state itself that is pushing so much disinformation. Um, And, you know, trying to beat the drums of war, especially with this chemical weapons, right? They're trying to provoke a U.S. military intervention in Russia's intervention in Ukraine, i.e. World War III. And they're pushing for it as hard as they can, even when no one else gets behind them. And that just tells us, you know, the power of the fourth estate in driving this whole thing, driving public opinion, which drives the the politicians in a really nasty feedback circle of disinformation, um, uh, russophobia and, you know, a, a, a kind of mob like behavior that starts to resemble the scarlet letter.
0: There's a U.S. News and World Reports report. Pentagon asks top eight U.S. weapons makers to meet on Ukraine. The Pentagon's Office of Acquisition and Sustainment, the weapons buyer for the Department of Defense, will host leaders from the top eight manufacturers. They're they're doing this today to discuss the industry's capacity to meet Ukraine's weapons needs if the war with Russia lasts years. This is according to two people familiar with the meeting. Mark. I believe that if the United States is having this meeting under the pretext of if the war with Russia lasts years and we have people like Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson retired, we've got Scott, we've got uh, Scott Ritter saying that for all intents and purposes, this thing is over and that um, there's really no way that the Ukraine uh, military can sustain itself for Sustain itself for any prolonged period of time, that it's the United States dragging this thing out that's going to make it last for years. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I, I think I have. There was an uh, what I consider an unconfirmed uh, comment on this news from the CEOs of Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, and Northrop Grumman, and I, I the the quote was a little bit more like a sound, and it kind of went. Ka-ching! <laughs> I dig it.
2: Okay, before you go, I do want to ask you about another big story too, and that is the Ukraine, the Ukrainians are saying that I guess German President Steinmeier is a little bit too much of a Ruski lover and uh, he's his, his uh, presence is not welcome in in their in Kiev. Have you heard about that?
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, so, you know, the German president uh, uh, you know, recently he was the German foreign minister. And during the meetings of the Normandy format to negotiate out n- and negotiate out the Minsk two protocols, uh, he developed uh, the Steinmeier formula for uh, implementing the Minsk accords which Zelensky agreed to and the far right the ultra nationalists in Ukraine decried as capitulation to Russia and eventually the entire of Zelensky's regime got behind that characterization of this and you know completely decried the Minsk accords and um uh, in particular they demonized Steinmeier for for coming up with an implementation for them, something that they never, you know, uh, would accept. Um, So now that the Zelensky regime is deciding which European Leaders, it will deign to to accept, and they also went on to say that th- they have no interest in meeting any EU leader who isn't bringing them weapons or worse sanctions when they're coming. That's uh, pretty pretty ballsy, um, and uh, it 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 shows uh, how deep the attitude towards serious uh, peace negotiations towards a ceasefire uh, is uh, in the regime in Kiev, which is to say not very far.
0: (laughs) Mark Shloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Uh, Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Brooklyn subway shooting suspect Frank James is now in custody. The man wanted for allegedly donning a gas mask, releasing a smoke bomb, and opening fire on a crowded Brooklyn subway Tuesday morning was taken into custody uh, earlier this afternoon. Authorities said 62-year-old Frank James was spotted by bystanders in the the area of St. Mark's Place and First Avenue in the East Village. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist, Ted Rawl. As always, Ted, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So police were alerted to his presence by pictures on social media that showed him basically wandering around the area of St. Mark's Place and First Avenue, and precinct officers engaged him and took him into custody without incident at 1.42 p.m. earlier today. He was taken to the Ninth precinct. Ted, uh, what's going on? I know you you live in New York. Uh, Talk about this. And, you know, one just off the top, of course, has to question the sanity of an individual, because in order to engage in something like this, and if you expect uh, not to be apprehended, I mean, you've got to be ready to immediately go off the grid in the United States or it won't be long before the authorities are able to put their hands on you.
3: Yeah, well, that's for sure. Um, it, it looks it looks clearly like there was a complete lack of um, decent planning, uh, you know, for this uh, or at least any attempt to get away with it. Um, it seems pretty clear from the entire picture, from abandoning the weapon at the scene to leaving uh, the receipt for uh, a, you know a, a rented truck U-Haul to uh, going to basically wandering around a tourist area. The St. Mark's Place in First Avenue is a very trafficked tourist area in, of the East Village, a uh, very trendy place. Um, and, uh, you know, so all of these things point, and not to mention also the, the, the YouTube videos, which uh, uh, contain some sort of baffling, wacky, uh, pseudo-political ranting. Uh, the whole thing paints a picture of someone who's, Clearly,
2: uh, you know, not seen. And 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 the other thing is, and it gets back to this: we keep seeing this over and over, and that is people who are insane, mentally ill, and have the option to, you know, have the opportunity to get their hands on weapons in this society, and then, um, and then a bunch of people get killed, and afterwards we get thoughts and prayers. That's what we get. Thoughts and prayers for the victims. No one ever says anything you doing, anything about, um, you know, men, and this is my thing, about addressing the issue that people who don't have health care coverage can't get mental health coverage. All of this stuff about mental illness, but they won't say, well, you know what? From now on, everybody can at least get mental health coverage, Ted.
0: And, and before you respond to that, Ted, all of that, Garland, goes back to the Reagan administration and the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill Teran
3: all those things are totally true, plus we live in a society that literally drives people crazy uh, <laughs> by putting them under tremendous stress uh, from uh, you know basically having to worry from uh, birth to death about everything from where their meal next meal is coming from to how they're going to get educated to how they're going to be able to get their car repaired, uh, you know, wondering whether Uh, You know, they're going to lose their jobs through no fault of their own. Um, So you put uh, we have I mean, the mental health crisis in this country is has been ongoing. It has been ignored. It is the pandemic has made it exacerbated it. it. We have an entire population of 300 plus million people who have been. Uh, based, sub, you know, subjected to a higher, even higher than usual level of stress over the last two years. So yeah, I mean, Americans are losing it and uh, they're losing it in bigger numbers uh, than before.
2: Well, um, and, and uh, moving to our second story, and I think this is very interesting. Um, President Biden went to Poland and said, you know, he was, uh, you know, th- th- though they tried to walk back from it, he was seeking regime change in Poland. And immediately after, you know, my comment was, I think they're going to get, I mean, excuse me, regime change in Russia. I think they're go- there's going to be a good bit of regime change and it's going to be throughout Europe. Um, based on these sanctions, cost of living increases, things of that nature. And right now, you know, most of us had said, yeah, Macron's going to win. And even now, I think the odds are he's going to win in France. But it is possible this time that he might not. Ted Rawl, your thoughts?
3: Well, uh, yeah, Emmanuel Macron is uh, both the beneficiary and the victim of this sort of two-tiered election system, which... Uh, to foreign observers, might look like a good system, but but it has the effect of elevating uh, someone who might be a marginal character to a higher platform, and you know that's exactly what just happened this time. I mean, effectively, the race for second place was a, t- a tie. Uh, most people would say uh, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who was uh, a radical left candidate. I uh, only came in a few points behind marine le pen uh, and her uh, far right p- party and uh, and she only followed uh, President macron by a few points so really it's effectively a three way tie um, but because now uh, the a vote against macron is going to have to go to uh, either go to le pen or abstentions I, it, at this point you know i'm'm I'm, for the, I, by the way, I, I have French nationality, so this is something I think maybe a little more about than most people. Um, one of the things that's, that that uh, the French do not do is just lash out against their and to the point of being willing to vote against their own ideology, like you will not get, for example, the phenomenon of a disgruntled Bernie voter casting a vote for Donald Trump, or if things had gone the other way uh, the other direction that 's just not the french mentality there's more uh, likelihood that people who are disgusted will just abstain and just not vote sit on their hands on election day but marine le pen is a far more seasoned candidate she ran a she's running a better campaign this time and the disgust with macron is vast and the thing that's dangerous is that the center-right and the center-left parties have effectively been obliterated by Macronism. I mean, the Socialist Party elected, uh, elected François Mitterrand for mm-hmm. two long terms. Uh, they're down to like 1.5 percent of the vote. Uh, the Socialist Party in France used to be effectively like the Democratic Party here. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing change.
0: Talk about not only what's happening in France, but there seems to be this growing movement to the right. It's happening in, uh, in Italy. Uh, it's happening in the United Kingdom. There, That Tory right uh, government now is, is fairly secure, uh, I think still. Um, you've got what happened in Germany where the Christian Democrat Angela Merkel, um, that coalition now has, has broken up. Uh, as well as in, in other uh, European countries, this right-wing movement is growing. And when I listen to what uh, Marine Le Pen is running on, she's running on a lot of kitchen table issues, to Garland's point. Gas is too high, the inflation in the country, whereas um, the, current, uh, the current president is running on, we can't let the right take control.
3: Uh, that's right, and you're always in a weak position when you're just running on defense. Like, look out for the the my opponent. My opponent is, more, is as much as you hate me. Vote for me because my opponent is dangerous.
0: And and not only not and not only to that to that point, but but also uh, it seems as though Macron is running on ideology, whereas Le Pen is running on issue.
3: That's. Right, that's very well said. Yeah, that oh, that's, that is exactly correct, and um, and I think that's you know that's that is a not a good place for Macron to be. Um, Marine Le Pen is speaking to the yellow vest type issues, bread and butter stuff. I mean, cost of living in France has become is out of control. Inflation is crazy, um, and I think the real issue here is that sort of the French uh, sort of way of life is viewed as under threat. And that's not just a right-wing thing. Um, You know, she certainly has a nativist side to her, very strong nativist side to her uh, appeal, but she's also coupling that with uh, the idea that, look, look, the French are, you know, the, the France of the long lunch, uh, with, you know, four glasses of wine and long breaks and workers' rights and affordable, if not free, college for all. All that stuff is, uh, you know, what the French say is they're in danger of becoming Americanized. They, they, you know, there's McDonald's everywhere. The way of life that makes France, life in France sweet seems to be going away. And that's, you know, that's some, basically she's, ty- she's uh, tapping into... That anxiety. Macron's trying to basically say, tell everyone in France to, you know, we have to, uh, you know, we have we have to cut costs. Uh, he's the candidate of austerity. And, you know, austerity and, Fr- and and the French mentality don't really go very well together.
2: Ted, here's the other thing, too. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not a Frenchman. So, or, you know, a French person. So, you know, I don't I don't have a right to tell these people what to do. But. The other thing is what's going on right now in in Eastern Europe and Europe and in particular France has a history if you look at de Gaulle that who was a you know a legendary figure he dropped out of NATO he was not by any stretch of the imagination an anti-Russia guy so much so that the US CIA tried to overthrow his government so there is that element what do you think of that part of the history of French culture. How does that play into Le Pen's position, knowing that she's not in really into the whole Ukraine thing? Um, your thoughts?
3: Well, not to mention that also France and Russia have deep cultural ties uh, that go back a very long way. There's many uh, quote unquote French people who have Russian last names because uh, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of white Russians uh, came to France after the Russian Revolution. Um, and so, uh, you know the, it, the the Russian court spoke French, um, so the uh, you know there's Russophobia just doesn't go very far in France. It certainly doesn't have the kind of appeal that it does in the United States. So, you know, uh, from an American point of view, it might be surprising that uh, you know trying to tar her with sort of a uh, pro-Russian uh, or or Russia-friendly outlook uh, might, might not be effective in France, but it's not going to be effective in France. Um, you know, I, I think regardless of what feelings are about the war in Ukraine, um, French, the average French person sort of has a a fondness for Russia. Uh, so I don't think, you know, it's just not going to work the same way.
0: When you said, Nate, that, that Marine Le Pen is a nativist, uh, are you equating nativist and nationalist, or are those two different things?
3: Um, well, is there's, one there's
0: more cultural diagram- versus one more being uh, political?
3: This is Venn diagram. I mean, so basically, the appeal of Marie of Le Penism, and this was true about her father uh, Jean Marie as well, um, is basically look France is a white Catholic country by culture. And by religion, uh, although in reality this is a fiction, most French Catholics never go to mass, for example, and the church is in deep trouble but that 's the fiction and the idea is that everybody who uh, is to become French you have to sort of, you have to assimilate fully you have to speak french you can 't wear uh, you know for example um, uh, hijab you have to for example, when uh, my ex wife uh, was nationalized as French because I have French citizenship, and she had to have her name Francified and changed to a more french sounding name mm. as a condition of citizenship mm. so assimilation is, is is a very important part of their their dogma there mm-hmm. and uh, I think so basically the nativism is look uh, we don 't want if we have too much immigration it 's going to change the fundamental white Christian, specifically Catholic, cultural character of this country, and unfortunately, that's appealing to a lot of white Frenchmen.
0: Ted Roll, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. There is a great piece in Common Dreams entitled From Mosul to Raqqa to Mariupol Killing Civilians is a Crime. While Western leaders are demanding that Russia be held accountable for war crimes, they have raised no such clamor to prosecute U.S. officials. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's a co founder of I- Global Exchange and Code Pink, Women for Peace, is the author of the 2018 book Inside Iran The Real History and Politics of the Islamic Republic of Iran, and she's the co author of this piece, Medea Benjamin. As always, Medea, welcome back. Good to be on with you. You write Americans have been shocked by the death and destruction of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, filling our screens with bombed buildings and dead bodies lying in the street. But the United States and its allies have waged war in country after country for decades, carving swaths of destruction through cities, towns, and villages. On a far greater scale than has so far disfigured Ukraine, uh, talk about this this hypocrisy and how I can only imagine that most on the world stage, whether it be at the United Nations, at the ICC, I mean, uh, pick, um, at, at NATO, they're they're shaking their heads because the American position uh, is immoral. And uh, hypocritical:
4: Well, right. The hypocritical part is um, the uh, what we wrote about in this piece because we look back at the u s bombing of two cities, one in uh, Iraq and one in Syria, and look at the huge destruction that was caused, in fact, um, way worse than has been uh, done in Ukraine. Uh, to date, and how the international community paid no attention to that, didn't publicize at all uh, what was happening at the time. There were almost no reporters who bothered to go in and uh, assess the damage or talk to the victims, and then no outcry for any war tri- crimes tribunal or any kind of accountability.
2: You know, I, I want to ask you about this because, and I'll tell you a real quick story. I was at a local car wash near my house with some, some uh, uh, let's just say, brothers that I grew up with, to, uh, and, and and they brought this up. And I noticed that in the black community, I heard a lot of things similar to the discussion that I have in that they really saw a racial um Element here. One of the guys, in fact, was a was a was a Muslim, and they brought up, you know, this. Look at how America is treats countries when they're people of color or Muslims, et cetera. And then here, Ukraine, we see where the country, you know, where people are all white, and the the U.S. is outraged. and And I noticed a bit of an anger and a, and a frustration over that. What are your thoughts on that, um, Amadea?
4: Well, we certainly see that when we look at the commentaries that are coming from uh, Muslim journalists, from the global south, and it's interesting that you bring it up with respect to people in this country as well. Uh, Certainly people in the Middle East have been horrified by U.S. policies for these last two decades, and when they see entire cities reduced to rubble, like in the case of Mosul where there were 138,000 houses destroyed and killing of about 40,000 civilians in that one city alone, um, they they bristle and say, how can the world community be so hypocritical, have such double standards? Uh, And um, yes, they have compassion for the people of Ukraine, as we all should have. uh, But they are asking, why doesn't that extend to uh, not only the victims of U.S. policies and the Western world's policies, but to people of
0: color? I would push back a bit, uh, Medea, to your reference of the world community, because Muslim countries did not vote with the United States. Most African countries did not vote with the United States. China didn't. India didn't Israel did South America South America so <laughs> I, I would just push back to your point of uh, the world community I don't unless it's unless the world got a lot smaller <laughs> on, <laughs> as a result of this vote Medea Benjamin
4: well the world community I think I said did not have the same outcry uh, in the case of um, uh, of the us uh, bombings because the world community uh, in in many ways uh, didn't bring this kind of uh, pressure to bear in the United Nations, didn't kick the U.S. out of the uh, U.N. Human Rights Council, uh, you know, doesn't have mm-hmm. the power because the U.S. is so dominant in these global institutions, which is ironic because in the case of the International Criminal Court, uh, the U.S. is one of the A few countries in the world that doesn't even subscribe to it and yet is so quick to say that Russia needs to be brought before it.
0: In fact, if I could follow up on that point, uh, the the Hague Invasion Act is the United States federal law that allows the United States to invade the Hague. (laughs)
4: Yeah, I love that one.
0: (laughs) If if as a result of uh, ICC or other bodies' uh, uh, determinations or findings, American citizens are are held or detained. The United <laughs> States sanctioned the International Criminal Court. Uh, the prosecutor, Fatou Ben-Saouda. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> so uh, th- the United States has zero standing on the world stage to, to clamor or call for any type of international body sanction on any of this because the United States only seems to turn in that direction when it's in the United States states' perceived interest to do so.
4: Absolutely. And I think, um, as you pointed out in, in talking about uh, the vote at the UN, and as we see in uh, statements, or maybe not even so much by statements of leaders, because they're a little intimidated, but uh, certainly in the uh, kinds of reporting that's being done in places in the Global South, um, you see that quite clearly outlined.
2: Um, The other thing I think is uh, this uh, does, because, you know, for many years, people have been saying, you know, we we talk about the Palestinians and how, you know, people don't uh, Israel's not held accountable in any of the world bodies. I do believe that one of the things that has happened here is that it has really put an exclamation mark behind that point that the U.S. dominates these world bodies so much because when, you know, during the votes, there were, uh, you know, countries that were, were pushed countries that abstained. And we are starting to see the U.S., you know, as with the ICC, attempting to use these world bodies for lawfare as opposed to, um, you know, a rule of law. And I think this whole incident has shown that they're just kind of used when they're handy for U.S. interest. Your thoughts? I don't know if I made much sense with that, but I hope yeah, you get it.
4: totally. But again, it's it's the U.S. Uh, that is the one that doesn't adhere to so many of these global treaties uh, and yet is is so quick to talk about a rules-based order of international law uh, that they want the Russians to uh, be held accountable for. So uh, the U.S. wants it to have it both ways, to not join uh, key international treaties that Uh, are critical for some kind of um, global order, and yet uh, wants to use it against uh, countries that um, supposedly violate that very rules-based order that um, the U.S. uh, constantly violates.
0: According to U.S. News & World Report, Pentagon asks top eight U.S. weapons makers to meet on Ukraine. The Pentagon's Office of Acquisition and Sustainment, the weapons buyer for the DOD, today is hosting leaders from the top eight U.S. weapons manufacturers to discuss the industry's capacity to meet Ukraine's weapons needs if the war uh, lasts years. This is according to two people familiar with the meeting. A couple of things. One... This appears to be a leak from the Pentagon about the meeting, uh, which uh, seems to be one tactic that the Pentagon is taking to, to alert the public exactly what's being done and why. And it's interesting to me that they're having this meeting instead of the, the narrative being the United States is doing everything in its, in its power to bring peace to the region as quickly as possible.
4: Really, I feel like that has been the constant in this uh, war, is that the U.S. uh, and and Biden himself, whether it's in the State of the Union address or whether it's in press conferences and uh, meetings with uh, other government leaders, he doesn't say uh, the most critical thing is to find a negotiated solution and call for a ceasefire. Um, He is constantly Bragging about the amount of weapons that we're pouring into this. Uh, the uh, bragged last week that the U.S. has provided almost $2 billion in weapons to Ukraine since the invasion. And of course, bringing these uh, merchants of death to the Pentagon to talk about how they're going to increase the production of these javelins and stingers um, because. Uh, they have been talking about this war going on for years. And certainly if uh, the U.S. is wanting to bleed Russia dry, dragging it out for years and years, they're going to need the support of the military-industrial complex to keep this
2: going. Uh, You know, the other thing is it just goes to show that the people are always the ones who suffer. You know, the Ukrainians um, are being— um, basically used as cannon fodder. The, when And I always say this, every war, even if it's an unconditional surrender, every war ends in a diplomatic solution. The sooner you get to the d- diplomatic solution, the better. But it's obvious that the U.S. doesn't want a diplomatic solution. And, and sadly, part of it, I think, is because these people are going to make, make so much money. But they're just um, throwing the bodies of these um, of the Ukrainian citizens out into a war um, to sacrifice them for, I would argue, hegemonic uh, 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 machinations. Your thoughts?
4: Well, that's why we're calling for a global day of action on May 7th. And people say, yeah, but we have to support the Ukrainians. And we say, well, that's the way to do it is by calling for an end to the war. Get out on the streets, educate people in the community, flyer, have them sign petitions. Say, yes, we want to help Ukrainians by calling for an immediate ceasefire, by saying that uh, our government should be doing everything in its power to make a negotiated solution work. Uh, And that's the way that we can support Ukrainians, not by sending more weapons in, by creating no-fly zones, by prolonging this conflict for years, which would be absolutely devastating. I mean, there wouldn't be much of a Ukraine left.
0: You know, this uh, U.S. News and World Report piece that says that the United States is meeting with weapons manufacturers to discuss the industry's capacity to meet the weapons needs if the war lasts years, that says to me that it's the U.S. projection That the war will last for years because the United States is going to see to it that it does. I talked to uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, uh, U.S. Army retired. We've talked to Scott Ritter. We've talked to a number of experts who say it's already over. The war is over. Russia has accomplished what it set out to accomplish and that it's, you know, it's all over but the but the, but the screaming for right now, that within the next week or so, Russia has accomplished its ends and all that now has to happen is Zelensky needs to cry uncle. But it sounds like the United States wants to see to it that this is going to last for years and that the United States is going to invest whatever it has to invest to see to it that it does.
4: Well, we heard that from General Mark Milley when he testified, you know, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, when he testified to congressional leaders in a closed-door session and said that this uh, was a protracted war uh, that is likely to drag on for years. Uh, So, yes, I think if the U.S. continues to uh, be a, a detriment to coming to a peaceful solution, uh, then and and it is uh, uh, an indication if they meet with these weapons makers that they want to make sure that there is the ability to just keep pouring more weapons in, uh, and have the Ukrainians be the ones to suffer.
0: And as we get out, uh, another to me data point to support the argument is when when Biden went to Poland as far as I know, he did not extend any olive olive branch to President Putin to say, hey, why don't we sit down and see if we can work something out while I'm already over here? Also, there's a story we're going to be talking about, and that is that the president of Germany was on his way to Kiev with a, with the president of Poland and some other countries and was told, don't come. Why? Because you're a friend of Russia. Well, to me, if you're seeking peace welcoming a friend of Russia into your country to hopefully bring some news or be able to carry some news would would go a very long way in bringing peace. But they don't really seem to be interested in that. 30 seconds, Medea.
4: Well, I think Zelensky might be interested in that because he sees what's happening to his country and he's already said that he's given up on the, quote, dream of entering NATO and uh, all kinds of other concessions. I think it's at this point uh, the U.S. making it impossible to move quickly in that direction, and that's why we, the American people, have to get out there and demand it.
0: Mandia Benjamin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back.
4: Okay, thanks for having me on. Bye-bye.
0: You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Blatantly unconstitutional ban on nearly all abortions signed into law in Oklahoma. Quote, we are at a tipping point for abortion rights nationwide, warned president of Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Republican Governor Kevin Stitt of Oklahoma was denounced yesterday for signing into law one of the most extreme forced pregnancy bills in the United States, a law pro-choice, advocates argue, is blatantly unconstitutional and must be challenged. What are we to make of this? Well, let's turn to our next guest. She's the principal and founder of TML Communications and business columnist at Metro Philly, Teresa Lundy. As always, Teresa, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So the governor, Kevin Stitt, Of Oklahoma signed SB 612, which targets health care professionals by making it illegal for them to provide abortions at any stage of pregnancy, with only a narrow exception for pregnant patients who are at risk of death Unless their pregnancies are terminated under the law, which is scheduled to go into effect this summer, healthcare workers who provide abortion care could be charged with a felony and face as much as 10 years in prison, as well as a $100,000 fine. Your thoughts on this, not only what's happening or what just happened in Oklahoma, but how this is impacting the debate across the country.
5: Well one, I think this has been a uh intentional uh law that has been um probably in the in the works uh since uh, uh former President Trump was in position. I mean, right wing um conservatives were uh very active in ensuring that the woman's right to choose was in the hands of politicians. So as we see the um Joe Manchin, who is a Democrat but most act like a Republican has clearly made his stance when it came to ensuring that, um, the White House could actually put a bill into place, um, that was the Women's health protection act, which would essentially protect healthcare workers, um, while healthcare workers to provide abortions, uh, to patients, um, at the right time. So, I feel like across the country there is this uh, interesting dialogue that has been more increased where conservative movements used to um, almost move in shadows. But now is getting the response that is necessary to um, ensure that um, when it comes to the women's rights to choose, they're now conflicting that with it's now about public safety, which essentially it's not. It's just about their choice, their rights, and the protections they're in.
2: And it seems to me, I guess, in the same way, you know, when the voting rights decision was made in a conservative Supreme Court here the other year, they were, you know, waiting at the starting line with any number of bills to drop. Um, It seems to me that when they realized that they had, you know, the Supreme Court that may be friendly to their position on um, uh, uh, reproductive rights now, that that's kind of what's going on, that this is a move to say, let's throw a bunch of laws from a bunch of different angles at the court and see if we can get one of them through and then when one of them gets through then all of the rest will follow suit what do you think
5: yeah i think you're absolutely right i mean so the voting rights act i feel like we uh as we as the democrats kind of dropped the ball on that but again um that's why voting matters right so across the board i think midterms we have an opportunity to kind of to change the dynamics of what's going on in the u.s senate race and over here in pennsylvania there is some opportunity to actually shift that Republican seat to a Democrat. And hopefully we can actually start getting some bills that is necessary to actually change um, the, the, the trajectory of, um, of protection for not only uh, everyone, but really for black and brown communities. We have an opportunity to do so, but essentially we need to get on the same page. And what I think Democrats are really struggling with right now is getting on the same page as it relates to funding some of these opportunities and resources and uh rallies that is necessary to get these bills across the finish line what i'm seeing is kind of in the communication space conservatives are making their voices a little bit more clear um about what they're standing up for and how they're going about doing it and i think Really, this all stemmed from uh, this continuous pressure that we've been seeing from uh, former President Trump. You know, he is continuously doing these rallies. He's continuously doing these talking points. And we can't forget, even though he's not in the White House, but he is still doing these type of rallies that is bringing thousands of people. And these same individuals are in the spaces of decision makers. And I find that to be a a bit interesting. They're not doing another insurrection, but we don't know what these things could lead up to. Um, I don't necessarily see him running another time, but I do see um, a movement, a strong movement uh, that is very divided, um, very unsure And it's something that we got to keep our our hand uh, to to the pedal for
0: this. I see incredible hypocrisy within this anti-abortion movement. Many, not all, but many of the uh, anti-abortion organizations are Christian led. I have nothing against that until that then starts to impact public policy because we do have the understanding, it's not written, but we do have the understanding of separation of church and state. And so many of these organizations have no problem screaming separation of church and state until they now want to impose their belief and mindset on the public at large. Also, many of these organizations that are Christian-led are pro-life until you ask them about the death penalty. They're pro-life But they're also pro-death penalty. And then the other thing is that they scream individualism, individualism, individualism. But here they're using the government to make its way into the bedrooms and into the kitchen tables of people in this country. So, again, if that's your mindset, that's fine. And that's fine for you in your space. Just keep it out of public policy.
6: I find it hard because some
5: individuals. Uh, I mean, even when we talk about, you know, the new concept of critical race theory, which is actually not new. It's actually, and I try to sum it up for people. It's like it's telling the history about uh, the the crucial harshness that happened to Black people in, in back in the day, um, but bringing it to an educational standpoint. So it, it I, I feel like people kind of want to just focus on forward moving, you know, hey, this is what we're doing now. This is how we change. But there is no accountability for the works that were done in the past. And as history keeps teaching us, we can't move forward without looking at some of our past uh, issues and some of our past challenges and and also seeing um, how we win some of these wars. And so I think as history is telling us right now, what we have to do is we have to keep protesting. We have to put leaders in that has the best interest of everyone, not just on individual uh, self-worth of their own ideology or their religion, but having a a strong focus on, listen, how does this affect others and not just me and what my beliefs are? So there's a lot of things that are moving right now, but I think again, putting the right leadership in um, that is focused on the betterment of people and not just a specific portion to make them feel better about themselves will probably bring us to where we need to be here in America.
2: You know, the other interesting thing about this Oklahoma bill is, you know, they take a different angle because it doesn't go after the, the woman so much who would have the, uh, the, uh, uh, the abortion. It goes after doctors, So it's like, well, we're not saying you can't get one, but if any doctor performs one, then he goes to jail. So now they're I mean, and I think that's also particularly dangerous because, A, it's clearly an end around the constitutional decisions of Roe v. Wade. But the other thing, it, it, it brings back memories of like crazy people literally going in shooting doctors and it. Creates an environment where people now look at doctors as the bad guys, and some of these crazy people could be um, inclined to go, you know, take violent action towards healthcare professionals. What are your thoughts?
5: Now, you're right. Listen, healthcare uh, uh, professionals are here, you know, they were here during the pandemic when nobody else even wanted to stand up. We had new nurse practitioners, we had emergency responses, everybody was hands on deck. So now to punish these same individuals who saved lives, families and communities, is is not only unconstitutional, it's inhumane. And so when we look at, you know, the ones, again, who, and God forbid, something happens to this legislator that, you know, he may need some health care. And he's like, oh, I will call my regular doctor. But, you know, since he performed an abortion, he's now in jail. So essentially, you know, we, we have to be very mindful because, now um, we're, we're getting into a very tricky point. You know, we're not even talking about the the women. I think, the, uh, yeah, the women who actually, uh, you know, make what happened to insects or sexual assault, those types of cases. And you know, the woman's right to choose, and they may not can afford to go to another state, or well, the state you know next door could be at capacity, and that hospital's over capacity. So what do they do? And, and I think in those cases, you know, the, the, the law being passed as is did not take into consideration some of these other factors. But again, it, it's almost it went on deaf ears um, to some of the legislators that, that, that got it passed.
0: And now we have a situation in Texas where a, a woman, Lizelle Herrera, 26 years old, was charged with murder for allegedly self-inducing an abortion. And now in Texas, these charges are being dropped. This is, to Garland's earlier point, in terms of attacking health care providers, this is really gone, in my humble opinion, from the ridiculous to the sublime.
1: You
5: know, it's I'm I'm trying to just get my head around it, I mean, because all these policies and laws that are taking place is going to uh, hurt the next generation um, even the more, right? And then I feel like all of the movements that we are uh, actually making to try to strive to do better and to be better, I feel like we're now going backwards in time. And that's not what we should be doing. Um, So, yeah, we just got to take a a critical look at some of these uh, issues. Um, and, again, try to find the right leadership that can guide some of this, uh, the, you know, the, the guiding light in some of these policies that are being enacted.
0: Teresa Lundy, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate your analysis, and we look forward to having you back.
5: Thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you guys soon.
0: Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Global Times has a piece entitled, U.S. Attempts to Rope in India While Holding a Human Rights Stick. When developing relations with India, the U.S. has always treated it with a condescending mindset, even at a time when it wants to rope in New Delhi. Speaking Monday at a joint press conference during the fourth U.S.-India 2-plus-2 ministerial dialogue, Tony Blinken said the U.S. was monitoring what he called a rise in human rights abuses by some Indian officials. Reuters called Blinken's statement a rare direct rebuke by Washington on the Asian nation's rights record. What does all of this really mean? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a journalist, social activist, international business consultant and chemical engineer, George Koo. As always, George, welcome back. Thank you, gentlemen. Nice to be back. So the piece continues. In Washington's eyes, the image of New Delhi in terms of freedom and democracy is quite vague. Is it the world's largest democracy or a human rights violator? And when to use one of those two labels to describe India depends entirely on the U.S.'s need from the South Asian country. And, George, that that last statement, depending on the needs, is what I call... Consistent schizophrenia, Uh, the U.S. threatens to invade the ICC uh, uh, if uh, U.S. citizens are detained, but turns to the ICC to declare Putin a war criminal. The U.S. turns to the U.N. to chastise and sanction Russia, but allows India and and the Saudis to engage in genocide and war crimes. Now we're concerned about human rights in India, but what about those in Yemen and even here in the United States?
7: Well, it's been historically uh, consistent, uh, I would say, that um, if you're on our side, you're a democracy, if you're against us, you're a violator of human rights and we're gonna sanction you. And and that seems to be the only, um, it's a one trick pony. This is the only thing that we have to offer. Uh,
0: you
7: know, I, I forgot, is it Teddy Roosevelt that used to say, "Speak softly and carry a big stick"? Correct. I don't. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm I'm going to misquote him now because what we're now doing as as a matter of foreign policy is to speak very loudly, but carrying a very shriveled twig. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and this twig is if you don't behave, if you're not with us. We're going to sanction you. We're going to call you all kinds of names, human right abuse being the worst. And and if anything worse than that is if so facto, you are automatically now not a democracy, and you're on our S-list, uh, if you will. So um, it's, it's really a desperation on the part of Blinken. And it, he doesn't seem to understand and obvious, that obviously— he doesn't have a carrot at the end of the stick, and the stick is barely a twig. It's not, it's not frightening anybody. And, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't play very well, and it, it doesn't seem to bother him, or he doesn't seem to realize it isn't playing very well. I'll, I'll name a recent example. US was going, hustling around to get everybody to join in the sanction against Russia. So US, Canada, and the EU countries sign on. But guess what? 53 countries in Africa, they didn't join the sanction. 33 Latin American countries, they didn't sign on to the sanction. 22 Middle East countries, they didn't join the sanction. There were three countries in Asia out of 48 that did join a sanction. That's Japan, South Korea, and Singapore. And then you add Australia and New Zealand, and that's it. So that's why I say, you know, the, the stick is, doesn't have that kind of clout that it used to have. And the big countries like China, India, and Brazil, they're, they're not gonna pay attention because to them keeping their trade, normal trading relationship with Russia is much more important, economically speaking, and serve their own self-interest than to go around and signing on with Blinken and, 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 and have this big worldwide, quote-unquote, sanction on, uh, on Russia.
2: You know, George, and I think your comments are particularly um, salient when it comes to India for, for two reasons. Number one, and that is that Russia and China are working and other countries are working with India, um, the BRICS countries are expanding to build a new economic world order so that there can be more equity um, in, how, in trade. Um, that's number one. And it's like, you know, if I have to in- interpret what Tony Blinken said to India, it would go something like this. Let me give you a reminder why you need to build that other re- re- uh, that other world order because we are not to be, um, we are not to be, uh, um, trifled de- with. Yes, de- yeah, exactly, dealt with. And, and the other thing is this, and I think this is critical. If I'm India, I've got a huge population, I've got industry, I aspire to be a world power. I have the population, the people, the technology, the knowledge, right? And I'm looking at this saying, well, if I start to rise as a world power, I now know beyond a reasonable doubt to a moral certainty that I'm going to get the exact same treatment as Russia and China. So if I have any aspirations to be a world power, I better get on board with them now so I can create an an environment where I can safely increase my my economic power. Your thoughts?
7: Yeah, well... you summarize it very well. I think um, the article, I think the article quote, quote uh, Kissinger and saying any country knows, you know, it's, it's bad to be a, it's bad to be an enemy of the United States. It's absolutely fatal to be a friend of the United States. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's what you're saying. The other thing, of course, is that India has a very long standing relationship with Russia. It's not just uh the opportunity to buy cheap oil because of the sanction. That's not the only thing. The Russians have been supplying India with arms, and they've had a long trading relationship. Uh, What's in it for India to break all that off just to sign on and be part of the U.S. sanction? There's no carrot at the end of the stick, and there's no incentive for, for them to sign on. So the only thing Blinken can offer is this threat to be to no longer disregard you as a friend. Uh, That's that's about it.
0: And also, when you look at borders and the, the, the long border that India shares with China, it's important for and the and understanding the relationship between China and Russia that's a group when when you start to engage in some forward thinking and some projection and which way the wind is blowing that's probably the party you want to go to go ahead
7: right well i think a very clear recent indication that they understand which way the wind is blowing is when they abruptly cancel a visit from the a high-ranking delegation from UK, uh, led by this I guess, the speaker of the of the parliament, and they were going to come to India to push the message that you need to be part of our sanction, part of the the, the group, the, the West that's uh Russia. They abruptly cancelled that visit because Wang Yi, the foreign minister from China, came to visit. Now, you know, here you have supposedly border tension between India and China, but India up to meet with and talk to China because there's a lot more to it than the border uh, tension. And as Wani said, hey, we can resolve, we can solve this border tension in time. You know, the the stakes are much higher than this border tension that we have. So India, very well known, very well know what the priorities are and what's important to them.
0: Let me just quickly add, we can solve these border tensions in time, especially when you look at the other side of the table and see who's trying to put pressure on you. The United States is forcing a lot of these relationships India, I'm sorry, Iran and Venezuela and Russia and Venezuela. The United States is forcing these relationships, and now these countries have developed economies and they have developed militaries that will now allow them to stand independent and allow them to stand together.
7: Well, yeah, at best, they have learned to absorb the blows of sanctions and Correct. figure out a way to live with it, you know. And uh, But on the other hand, I think Blinken may have been feeling the hubris of holding a stronger hand because South Korea has turned Right and mm-hmm. ostensibly anti china and Japan still been following following the u s almost as loyally uh as faithfully as australia you know and and um in Pakistan, they were able to successfully and get Imran Khan out of power. yeah, no question that it has the n e d uh fingerprints all over that particular one. So Lincoln may very well feel that hey, I'm holding a willing hand and India you better wise up and, and be part of my hand. So it it's it's um it's a overshot in his in his confidence, I would say.
2: George, uh, you know, one of the things that I think is going to be critical, you know, whenever countries are going through stressful times, are the people supporting the government? I think right now, clearly, if you look at the numbers, the people in Russia are prepared for whatever difficult times they have to do, de- deal with because they're supporting the government. I think the people in China, if you look at the numbers, feel as though their government is acting in their best interest. I think what we're seeing in Europe and as I brought up the Macron-Le um, Pen uh, um, race— I think we're going to see the people in Europe are going to be the weak link for the U.S. coalition and they're going to lose their mind. This is going to be a bad summer to be a European leader as the prices skyrocket and the people don't want any parts of it in Europe. Your thoughts on that?
7: Yeah, absolutely. When the inflation hits, um, that's going to be the pain that is going to be very hard to to withstand and and be and be be forgiving about what their government is doing, even if the government is not responsible. But the fact that they bow to the U.S. pressure and causing all this pain, it's going to be very hard and be interesting to see how Macron will do in the runoff. Uh, He's not likely to win by the huge margin that he did on the previous election. And and he may even lose uh, at this point. I think the other thing that's going to be galling, and it's kind of interesting, is that all this sanction on Russian gas and oil is making the Europeans pay through the nose. And guess who's making a lot of money? this? <laughs> and it's really funny because it's China that's making a whole lot of money because they have a long-term contract with the U.S., and the price of the long-term contract for natural gas is about one tenth of what the natural gas is now selling in the EU market. And so the China can perfectly well divert the LNG ships from the, from the U and, and the CIF price, so the the shipping cost doesn't isn't coming out of China's pocketbook. They can divert that gas and take the U.S. gas intended for China and sell it to the EU at a much higher profit, a nice return. And the U.S. can't do anything mm. about it because when they signed that, that long-term contract, there was a, was a severe penalty for, for reneging and welching on that contract because they thought the Chinese may, may decide to renege on the contract long-term down the road when the gas is expected to go down. No, nobody was thinking or planning on the (laughs) sanction against Russia at the time.
0: George Ku, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And that point about China and natural gas is a a great, great point. Thank you so much. And we look forward to having you back.
7: Thank you. Nice to be with you.
0: Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. There is an interesting piece in antiwar.com entitled Mersheimer, Russia sees existential threat must win. It opens as follows. University of Chicago professor John Mersheimer widely respected dean of the Realism School, also known as Offensive Realism, of International Relations, has put the conflict in Ukraine in a context that everyone can understand and needs to understand before it is too late. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He works with Tell the World, the publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. He, uh, He was also a CIA analyst for 27 years. He He is on the steering group of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, of which he is a co-founder, Ray McGovern. As always, Ray, welcome back. Thank you. You write, Mersheimer was true to form offensively realistic he explained one the root cause lies in the april 2008 nato summit declaration that UK- ukraine and georgia will become members of nato and two that russia sees this as an existential threat and therefore must win this one i'll throw it to you ray mcgovern that's the major point uh, mir
8: scheimer has been right about this for about six or seven years actually Since the overthrow of the duly elected government, which was a little bit pro-Russian, Yanukovych, in Kiev, Ukraine, in February 2014. Uh, Mearsheimer saw this, uh, and the sequel to it, as uh, endangering Russia's national security. And, uh, well, whether Mearsheimer was right or not, uh, Putin certainly saw it that way. And that's what counts. Now Mearsheimer points out that not all academics in this country or pundits or politicians agree that uh, the Russians see this as an existential threat. <laughs> John is a very polite guy. Uh, so he bordered on the offensive realism when he said, it doesn't matter what people, <laughs> to uh, what what's, what they think is irrelevant, what matters is what Putin thinks. Now, there's ample evidence uh, that Putin saw the encroachment of NATO up to Russia's border, incorporating 14, count them, 14 nations after the U.S. promised way back in 1990 not to incorporate any nations east of East Germany, And, of course, all 14 are east of East Germany. Well, Ukraine was next. We were warned. We were warned specifically by the the young at that time, uh, Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov. He said, Mr. Burns, Mr. Bill Burns, our ambassador in Moscow, do you know what net means? (laughs) Burns said, yeah. And so net means net. Our red line is Ukraine being considered for membership in NATO. He said that on the 1st of February, I have the Moscow cable because WikiLeaks released it. It's authentic. If I've seen one Moscow cable, I've seen about 7,000 in my career. And uh, what did Burns say to Condoleezza Rice, our secretary of state? He says, you know, Russia has actually legitimate security concerns. Uh, We're not the only ones that have. So you might want to take this seriously. Now, two months later, NATO in its wisdom with U.S. actually prompting it, said that Ukraine will become a member of NATO. That's where John Muirshamer starts out and uh, what happened since namely the emplacement of missile sites in romania and in poland and perhaps in ukraine that was a bridge too far putin decided that he had to move he had to show that this was not going to be tolerated by by the us by by the by, by russia and actually uh, he was reluctant to do this on his own. Long story short, he's got a big brother now. His big brother's name is uh, President Xi Jinping of China. Uh, They've got an alliance now, and when it was clear that Xi Jinping was gonna support Putin no matter what, and that's a big deal, um, Putin decided, well, he'd wait until after the Olympics in Beijing but then on the next day, he accepted the independence of Donetsk and Lugansk, those Russian-speaking provinces out in the eastern Ukraine. And then he uh, honored their request, so to speak, to free them from the kind of shelling that had, they, they had been subjected to since the coup in 2014. Count them up, that's eight years. So uh, bottom line here. Putin really can't lose this one. He's got to win it. That's big. Even if he has to turn to China, even if China has to stir up some trouble in the South China Sea or against Taiwan, has to do some sable rattling, they're going to do it, in my view. And U.S. military will be faced with the painful choice of getting involved in a two-front war with two other nuclear powers so a lot is at stake he can't lose and the way mearsheimer looks at it you know the worst is because the us can't lose either all right biden can't lose not because ukraine has anything to do with an existential threat to the united states but because politics won't let him re- won't let him appear weak And last thing here is that Putin recognizes this. He has said many times explicitly that U.S. foreign policy is hostage, hostage to domestic politics. And as Biden accuses Putin of every crime in the book, including now genocide, well, it's not quite possible to to negotiate with the devil, is it? If you demonize Putin, you can't negotiate with him. So we're at loggerheads. And unless uh, more more reasonable people come to the fore and prevent uh, what Biden is being asked to do now, and that is confront Russia directly, uh, unless he has that kind of support before the by-election or the, uh, the midterms in, in November, I'm afraid, I'm deathly afraid, that he will go ahead and do things that will require not only a Russian response, but a Chinese response. Two-front war, that's the last thing we need. You know, there's something else I think that you have to take
2: into context, and I'd like to get your thoughts. I agree with you on everything, however, add this. The sanctions in Russia. We're already starting to see, you know, something I've been talking about is that, you know, if you look at we can look at them as coalitions, right? Uh, The Russian coalition, which includes China, which seems to include India, which seems to be including some other countries that are maybe in the background, but a part of that coalition. The U.S. coalition, I think, has some significant cracks in it and weaknesses. If we look at what's going on in France right now, Emmanuel Macron is in deep and serious trouble and could very well lose to um, Marine Le Pen. I know the rest of the leaders in Europe are looking at the prices of fuel, looking at the inflation and saying, there but go the grace of God, go I. So the hole in the crack in Biden's coalition, particularly going into the summer, is the people in the EU could, I mean, if this inflation thing starts going, going up, could put such pressure on their leaders. I mean, some of the governments could collapse, things of that nature. They've got they're being pressured by an inordinate amount of refugees. And, you know, whenever a country gets a lot of refugees and prices are high, people start getting mad at the refugees and blaming them. So anyway, your thoughts about how that can influence and fracture Biden's coalition and make it harder for the U.S. empire to be able to to
8: hold it together? Well, it's not going to hold together over the longer term. The question in in the eyes of U.S. policymakers is, can it hold together until November uh, the Democrats are really afraid of losing the House as well as the Senate. If that happens, well, <laughs> I don't wish it to happen, but I can see that their incentive is to hold this thing together in November. Now, you talked about cracks, Garland. There are crevices. Uh, there are canyons opening up. Uh, here's Germany, right? Now, what Schultz, in defiance of Germany, Germany's entire post-war, and I'm talking about World War II period, their ethos was not to get involved in supplying arms to people at war, uh, to be very circumspect in what kind of aid they will, will give to people who are at war fighting whoever, it's Russia, the United States or what. So what's happening now? Well, his own coalition is saying, well, wait a second. These sanctions, uh, you know, we need Russian gas. We need Russian oil. And besides, you know, this is a reverse. Do we really want to go here? Uh, The economic things are just one thing. Uh, The the dangers to an outbreak of of real war would be catastrophic. So uh, bottom line after Scholz, the new chancellor, relatively new ch- chancellor in Germany, after he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, we're in, we're going to give tanks, we're we're gonna, we're gonna violate precedent, we're going to double our defense budget." Well, now they're thinking twice about it, and particularly since there are really, really important economic relationships between Russia and between well between Russia and Germany uh, the the financiers the people who call the shots in Berlin are not going to let their business interests in Russia go completely by the wayside
0: you write Houston we have a problem For President Joe Biden and the Democrats, even though Ukraine poses zero strategic threat to the U.S., a Russian win would be politically a devastating defeat, according to Mersheimer. Then you question compromise or he questions questions compromise and the kind of give and take that's needed to put together a compromise is impossible. I'd say to that, particularly now, since we see that the United States is showing no interest in bringing peace, the United States now is even today convening weapons manufacturers at the Pentagon to be sure that they can provide the necessary ordinance and other weapons for years to come. Whereas uh, in in talking to um, uh, Larry Wilkerson and talking to Scott Ritter and others are saying The fight is damn near over the war. I mean, Russia is on the verge of victory, but the United States seems to be doing everything in its in its in its uh, power to see to it that this thing drags on for as long as possible.
8: Well, you know, it has to do with domestic politics
0: again. You know,
8: we're you know, every week Biden says, oh, we're going to give another billion dollars of arms to Ukraine. Oh, no, no. It's going to be 750 million more this week. Well, what happens yeah, think about it, Wilmer. Uh, think about it, Garland. What happens when the Russians blow those weapons up as soon as they cross <laughs> the border into Ukraine?
0: You gotta send them more weapons. I think that's <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, Cui Bono? That would be a
8: real, a real, a real advantage for the military-industrial complex because they'll have to build new weapons, sell new weapons, get richer and richer. But what about the what about the external politics of this? It's going to look really dumb on Biden's part to be openly uh, criticized for sending weapons in that are one day into Ukraine and blown up. Uh, You know, it doesn't compute as a strong measure. And so he'll be pressed to do still more. Uh, No fly zone, MiGs, you know, you name it. They'll press him real hard. And Zelensky is not listening to Biden. He's listening to the neocons in Washington, and he's afraid of the Nazis in mm-hmm. Ukraine. Mm-hmm. That's a volatile mix. God knows what Zelensky's going to do. He's not his own man.
0: Ray McGovern, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You're most welcome. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great piece in AfroResistance.org entitled, Francia Marquez, Colombia's First Black Vice Presidential Candidate. With 99.6% of the votes counted this past Sunday, uh, Francia Marquez obtained 782,000 votes in the constellation to elect a candidate for the presidency of Colombia. In her case, she was second in the coalition of the Historical Pact, uh, Pacto Histórico, behind Gustavo Petro, who obtained more than four million votes. What does this mean for Colombia, and what does it mean for South America? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. She's the founder and executive director of Afro Resistance. She is a Pan Africanist organizer, and she's the author of this piece, jean williams Comrie, Welcome to The Critical Hour.
6: Thanks for having me.
0: So tell us, who is uh, Francia Marquez and why is all of this so significant?
6: Well, Francia Marquez, first of all, she is, we have to know she is a black woman. She is also a good friend of mine. But um, above all, she is somebody that has been in this um, for the long haul. She is somebody that comes from the territories. And when I say territories in the context of not only Colombia, but of Latin America, it means ancestral regions. And what does that mean, right? Because a lot of people, when we talk about Latin America and when we talk about land, which is somewhat different um, we talk about the regions in Latin America where black people live. In the case of Colombia, it's very, um, it's very different, right? Um, countries like Colombia, Guatemala, Honduras specifically, Brazil as well, some areas are collectively owned. What does that mean? That they're legally recognized um, to have collective ownership of black people, that means that decisions are made a very specific way where um, politically, the governments can't just come in and appropriate. Um, individuals can't just sell off um, pieces of land. It means that as a community, collectively, they make decisions that are best for their communities. That means the rivers. That means the land. That means the the beachfronts. That means that Black people have a very specific ancestral relationship to Mother Earth. So when we say, right, that Mother Earth is part of us and us is part of Mother Earth, that's what is meant. So when people are saying that they're land defenders, it's not in the abstract, right? So climate change, um, environmental degradation takes on a very specific meaning. And that is the case for women like Francia Masquez.
2: You know, and, uh, you know, my understanding in Colombia, particularly in Colombia, is that the history has been tremendous discrimination and a lot of actual violence um, against the um, Afro Afro Latino, against the black, you know, the black um, people there. And I would imagine this would be a huge um, move to, you know, help fight against that and to help, um, you know, get that straightened, you know, get that fixed and, and, and go in a new direction.
6: I'm not sure we can if we it's as simple as just getting it fixed, right? Because it has taken centuries of of violence, right? Um, it has taken centuries of of getting to where we are now, and and Francia is only one person, but she has the backing of a whole community, and Francia is something that's really important. It, and she comes, from an, she comes from an organization called Profesor Comunidades Negras, right? And, this is, and, I, and I'm saying this because a lot of times we try, in, and I want to be really, really careful here to, to not make comparisons, but there's this ideal, um, especially in you know, Western, a Western culture, that we put a lot of emphasis on individuals. Right. And when we put in a lot of emphasis on individuals, we forget a lot of times that we come from a community. And and that community is, you know, as a community, we are part of a collective process. Right. We don't get here. You know, we hear a lot of times like we stand on on the shoulders of greatness and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of times in the practice, we forget that. In black communities in Latin America, and I'm from Panama, right so I'm also like speaking this because of um I'm not from the United States, right so I've also grown up in a very collective process and I don't mean to say that it doesn't exist here, but a lot of the time you know United States is a very individualistic country mm-hmm. um, Francia doesn't come from an individualistic Um, culture. It's a very much a collective process. So for her to get to run as a vice presidential candidate wasn't just, oh, Francia has political aspirations. No, that is not, that's not how that happened. That means that her community and her political process based on a collective decision making process.
0: Led them there. I asked in my open, "What does this mean for Colombia, and what does this mean for South America?" Because if we look at recent elections from last year all the way to today in Chile, in Peru, in Nicaragua, uh, in in other countries, uh, there is this. Uh, you talked about community, a uh, collective process. There is this mindset of overthrowing United States hegemony, uni- uh, overthrowing American-imposed neoliberalism, and connecting with those who are from the country, with those who are from the community, with those who have greater ancestral ties. And so this, re- this, this is a substantive movement, which I think is frightening a lot of people in the United States.
6: I think it's going against the grain. Absolutely, I don't think it's frightening people like myself. For example, I think it's
0: no. I meant those. I meant those imperialists that are in power. That's what I meant.
6: <laughs> of course, I know exactly what you mean. But I think it's also um, inspiring, right? Mm-hmm. So I think I think it's um, challenging uh, the status quo most definitely. I think it's going to to push the boundaries. I also think it's... Um for example, conversations are are expanding now for groups of people that that never saw it possible right I think it's um Francia is inspiring through herself for being this really authentic black woman that has never changed who she is and what she looks like right Francia has ran her campaign, for example, being authentic to herself and her people. She has never shied away from sharing who she is, from from being a single mother head of household, from talking about how she was impacted by the civil war that plagued and continues to plague um, Colombia, for example, from being internally displaced, from living with that threats, right? Um, that's, she's still getting now. Right. Being a vice presidential candidate hasn't shielded her from the nasty hands of um, racism, from the oligarchies that still live and and thrive in Colombia, in the region. Right. She's still being she's still a threat to to U.S. imperialism. Right. So all those things are still going to continue regardless that she's elected vice president, regardless she's still going to be a menace to US imperialism that is still going to come let's see what the decisions now and and how the united states deals with um, with the combination of Gustavo Petro who has his own his own history and and Francia Marquez who has her own history those two are while they're running together they have their own separate history um, as, as a rule, as a person that comes from a two people that come from two different rural communities and two different histories, but let's see what this what this brings up. we're not going to be able to talk about for example from the United States we're not going to be able to talk about trade with Colombia, how it was spoken about before let's talk about we're not going to be able to talk about arms right and guns and this quote unquote War on drugs. That conversation is going to drastically change. Air fumigations, for example, is the conversation is going to drastically change. It is drastically changing because Francia herself has been impacted by aerial fumigations by the war on drugs sponsored by the United States. All those things now are radically going to forever be changed. She has now become the most important person in Colombian history, just by running, by virtue of a black woman running in the in, in Colombia.
2: Uh, you said that you know her well. What do we need to know about her as a person? What kind of you know what, that you know her as 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 a person?
6: Um, she's committed. She is not going to, she does not back off, right? She, um, she's somebody that has ambition. And I say that because um, I've known her, Oof, I want to say I've known her for over 15 years now. Um, I, I met her the first time she traveled to the United States um, to give testimony about what was happening in her region. And on the day that she actually got here, there was a big thunderstorm. Is that what it's called? A snowstorm. My 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 English English is not my first language, right? So um, a big snowstorm, and my my partner was like, I do not know what's going to happen. She was supposed to speak at CUNY. They canceled it. We were going to organize something at the house, but nobody was coming out. And he was like, you know where people go in snowstorms in New York City? And I had no idea because you know I'm from Panama. We I. I'm scared of the snow. I'm not going anywhere. I had just arrived in the country as well. And he said, people go to saunas. I was like, what? And we went to a sauna and Francia, she had never left the territory before. It was her first time in the U.S. <laughs> and we went to a sauna. We took the train and there were people at the sauna. And Francia did her lecture at a sauna.
2: <laughs>
6: and he got signatures and I interpreted for her and she was so happy that we had gone out. So that, that tells me that Francia didn't give up, right? Francia, because it, somebody else would have been like, you know what? It's so sad. I came out, I tried, but mm-hmm. Francia was like, no, I came to New York city to speak about what's going on in my territory. It was a commitment and a sacrifice that we made to raise the money for me to come. I'm speaking tonight. No or no snow. <laughs> Find me a crowd. And we went to the sauna and we spoke at the sauna. That's that that's one, right? And the other one is that one of the stories that that, that she says is that, you know, she started working when she was around fourteen. Um and that's hard, right? And and she didn't give up. And she she started being active with the Proceso Comunidades Negra because they were going to re, reroute the river by where she lived. Rerouting means that they were going to this um, um Rerouting means that they were going to
0: probably flood.
6: Yes, yeah, right. Her mm-hmm. community mm-hmm. to build to build a dam. To supposedly give electricity to another community, not close to where she lived. Okay. So she, she knew that she had to become active because they were not going to get any fish. And they depend on fish to feed their families. Mm. So she started going to meetings. And that's when she realized, oh, but they're doing more injustices in this community than I even knew about. Gotcha. So, that was at fourteen.
0: Wow, years old. Jean-Yves Williams Comrie, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back.
6: Absolutely, absolutely,
0: folks. You are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Carla Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Chris Hedges has a very good piece in Consortium News entitled The Pimps of War, wherein he writes, the unaccountable coterie of neocons and liberal interventionists who orchestrated two decades of military fiascos in the Middle East are now stoking a suicidal war with Russia. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political analyst and host of the podcast Public Agenda, Ray Baker. As always, Ray, welcome back.
9: Thank you guys for having me. It's good to
0: be back. So your your thoughts about, uh, I won't even read more at this point. Let me just get your thoughts to Chris Hedges' analysis here.
9: Well, I thought the thing that made Hedges' analysis most useful is that the 20 years he spent being a foreign news correspondent, and such legacy and respected outlets as the New York Times and things of the such, allow us the opportunity to see that he's not merely articulating this from a position of throwing Molotov cocktails from his basement on his couch. He is a person who has seen and experienced this. And one of the hallmarks of lived experience is that when we see repetition of patterns of behavior we are now positioned to call it out uh and i think that's valuable that hedges is doing this because in our the united states we get so bifurcated and so deeply entrenched into whatever our teams are right hedges in one in the piece talks about nationalism being a nationalist as an identity we find our identities in democrat republican liberal conservative right all right But we don't talk often enough about what are those unifying threads, those folks who tell us, well, we're all Americans, we should rise above it. What is it asking us to do in order to be the collective, one-voice American? And what Hedges lays out in that point is, quite honestly, to be an American, at least on the international scene, at least how geopolitics is framed, to be an American is to court, to love, and to revel in violence. The thing that I would add for your audience is that most often the decision makers who suggest that we move toward violence are not the ones, they themselves, who are put in harm's way. Say what we will about George Washington. That's not this conversation, and I'm happy to say many things about him too. But at least he was in war. At least he engaged in battle. The folks who are here talking about engaging in the active war to remake the world in their own image aren't even willing to be put themselves in harm's way. They want all the reward with none of the risk.
2: Uh, You know, another thing I think that he does that's so important in the environment we find ourselves in today is that he looks at this through the lens of history. You know, when you go to a lot of other countries and parts of the world where people have been, where their civilizations have been around for far longer than the U.S., they're very historical-minded, and they understand the importance of history. But what we get here is... Whatever happened started last six weeks ago, five weeks ago, a month ago, or whatever, and we get fed information through a present lens. And he gets into wait a minute, these things have been going on, and this pattern has been going on. He goes back to World War Two and the the things, the horrible things that have happened to the indigenous people in South America at the hands of a of a U.S. empire that was owing overthrowing governments. So I think it's important because. The discussion we get in modern-day America never gets into history and so so that we understand how people in other lands look at the U.S. empire. Your thoughts?
9: You you make a really good point there. And the concept about history and what we know of in the United States is the, co- the country and society at large is constantly an effort of American myth-making rather than American truth-telling. There's no way to engage. We wonder why we see such horrific violence in the subways of New York City from a country that's been at war with some other entity, even itself, for more than two-thirds of its life cycle, right? It, it, violence is the language that Americans speak with. And to your point, when we lay it out historically, those who want to turn their blind eye to that will say, well, that goes too far back. We should only talk about this moment. But when folks want to do the celebration of the United States, when we want to applaud some of the better qualities of the United States, then we're comfortable moving into a space where we're largely celebratory. We're largely remembering all the things that happened over the course of decades, even centuries. And so you raise a great point, and and to add to that point, I would only point out the inconsistency and unwillingness of Americans to tell the truth about their history at every turn.
0: And some of that goes right to... Hedges' point about they are pimps of war, puppets of the Pentagon, a state within a state, and the defense contractors who lavishly fund their think tanks, Project for the New American Century, American Enterprise Institute, Foreign Policy Institute, Institute for the Study of War, Atlantic Council, and Brookings. So what you now have are these internally funded so-called think tanks whose job it is is to put out white papers and to put out studies that validate their worldview, so that that worldview permeates the zeitgeist within American thought and becomes dominant thought within America. And any challenge to that is then considered unAmerican.
9: I think that I think that you raise a great point, and I think it's important that the audience hear that and consider. That's ostensibly we, – we saw what happened with Amazon and labor movement. Ostensibly, what you're getting in, in the form of the think tanks that are talking about foreign policy, you're getting here's labor training, here's a labor movement brought to you by the good folks at Corporation and Greed, right? You know, it, the, the defense contractors and whatnot fund these think tanks that, are spun, that theoretically are separate and independent and can operate and will operate outside of the guidance of their funding. But the think tanks reinforce the public policy that would be advantageous to the people funding them. If it's just coincidence because they share values, or if it's something more nefarious, either way, the consequences and results are those of us who are working or poor Americans often have to bear the gun and face the front line of the harm and violence that we now are asked to inflict upon other people who are the poor and working of where they are in order for U.S. hegemony to maintain. And I think that's one of the things that Hedges points out. And that's one of the things that you guys are doing here on the show, which is taking the theoretical and the dense uh, experience and language of Hedges and then what what, uh, our brother, uh, Brother Mark, would uh, say otherwise, making it plain for the folks who are listening.
0: And let me give one example. Uh, PNAC, the Project for the New American Century. Folks need to do just a very little bit of research on that and understand that that was a thing think tank that was created after George Herbert Walker Bush threw Dick Cheney and Douglas Fife and Richard Pearl and a lot of those others out of the White House, labeling them the crazies. They then went on and funded PNAC, the Project for the New American Century. And for those who think that the illegal invasion of Iraq was a direct result of 9-11, all you have to do is go back to the PNAC letter that was sent to Bill Clinton, asking Bill Clinton to intervene and overthrow Saddam Hussein. 9-11 was the pretext used for an agenda that was long in place before 9-11. Saddam Hussein was in the crosshairs of those neocons long before those two twin towers came down. Ray Baker.
9: Oh, yeah. Mr. Hussein was in the crosshairs of the United States uh, uh, for a very long time. You're correct. And, the, and it's the ability to feed two birds with one piece of bread. If there was a, dis, uh, a disenchanted section of the Iraqi civilization who felt like they were being neglected and they were then ostensibly harmed, Those folks would then be propped up and amplified in the United States to magnify the harms and ill effects that were indeed happening. Look, we can attend to whatever we want to call this human rights violations or a unequal distribution of resources across the globe, both here in the United States and globally, without practicing the type of hegemony that demands that the women and men and people who make up the United States Armed Forces must put themselves in harm's way, must exact harm and violence on others, because the the part that's most nefarious about that is it has people who would otherwise have good souls and good intentions under false pretenses agreeing to harmful and violent and negative behaviors and policies. And it's one thing to have this malicious intent to want to use war to accomplish whatever it is in regards to regime, regime change or resource allocation in another part of the world. It's another thing to know that the people of your of your society will not go for that So then you must mask your nefarious intent under something that is more noble. So you now you're preying on, P-R-E-Y, you're preying on the, the best and the, the most uh, highest values of our citizens in this country in order to exact some of the worst and nefarious means somewhere else in the world.
2: You know, to recall your comment a, moment, a few moments ago on the New York City subway attack, and one of the things I recall covering a story where UAE, the UAE, a country that has a, a, a smaller population than the state of North North Carolina was buying 23 billion dollars worth of military grade weapons from the US. So we pump weapons into a region which destabil- you you put all of those weapons in a region it's going to destabilize the regions and you're going to get war. But in the same way we pump the United States full of military grade weapons. People are running around with M16s and AK47s. You can you know buy them off of Amazon. I'm being facetious, but you can get them anywhere at a gun show. So we pump our own society full of weapons and we get the same kind of violence. And now they're like, okay, there's a war in Ukraine. Our answer, we're going to pump it full of weapons. No matter what happens, we pump the area full of weapons, including our own country, violence, then more and longer and more violent um, actions ensue. But the same people always make money from selling those weapons. Ray Baker, your thoughts?
9: Yeah. I mean, capitalism rewards the worst of us. And, to be a good capitalist is to agree to the terms of being the worst of a human being. And unfortunately for a country that celebrates violence and money, there's no, there's no way around that. And when I say that capitalism re- rewards the worst of us, it's not an absolutist position to say that people should not be an enterprise, that people should not sell things. Um, it's more so a conversation of who makes the most money, they who are willing to do the worst thing. And that's that's what I think your listeners and and we collectively as a society should wrestle with, because then we get to come back and say, no, we don't want a society like that.
0: New reporting uh, details corporate media's war industry pundits. This type of revolving door behavior should be prohibited for military officials to serve in a private capacity representing military contractors, according to a consumer advocate. Uh, U.S. corporate media outlets are saturated with pundits, many of them ex-military or national security officials, who take to the airwaves to promote hawkish policies and actions in Ukraine and elsewhere without disclosing their own ties to the arms industry. You hear this on CNN. You hear this on MSNBC. You hear this on NBC. Basically, there's no delineation, no distinction, no uh, line of demarcation between the profiteers and the pundits.
9: Absolutely, and and it's be, it's it's because it pays well. It's because, right? it's because it I don't, And I don't mean to be flippant about that. It may sound that way, but I don't mean to be flippant. It's because. There's a space for that because that's acceptable American theory, right? And what's not acceptable American theory? Hey, that racism is baked into the Constitution. Hey, that the, that sexual predation against women is baked into the Constitution. So we need to reevaluate this whole thing. Whoa, 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 that's a fringe element. Let's have somebody on that will contrast that. We don't often make sure that we have, every time we have a former military official, we don't have a peace activist on with that person all the time. And that, But that's because it fits the American narrative. And our goal is to not get ourselves into an American narrative, but to describe the type of place we want to live in and then do the work that gets us to that place.
0: Ray Baker, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back.
9: I appreciate being in a conversation with you all. Take care and be well.
0: Thank you, sir. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. And on behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.